Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to be. We're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, actually, we, I believe we're going to finish up Romans chapter 13 tonight. And, uh, and we're going to talk about a few things. One of, we're going to talk a little bit about debt, uh, because Romans 13 isn't really about debt, but it references that. So I want to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about what our ultimate, our real debt is to the world around us. We're going to be talking about um, uh, love in, in, in light of Christ's return and the, these sort of things. So uh, we're, we're going to dive in here, but uh, what I want to do, I want to read verses 8 through 10, that first section there. I want to read it through and then we'll go back through it again um, uh, bit by bit as we work our way through. But this is what Paul wrote. He said, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not, shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. If there are any other com commandments, uh, and if there are any other commandments, are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no evil to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So, one of the things you notice in Paul's writing is that uh, when he gives practical directions for Christian living, uh, when he does that, it, he, he tends to follow a very distinct pattern. He, each time that he focus on, focuses on a set of applications, whether it's when he was talking about gifts in chapter 12, or he talked about the government as we talked about last week, or in chapter 14, he gets into personal convictions and that sort of thing. But he always anticipates the question, why should we do this? He always anticipates that in every situation. And consistently, he gives the same answer every time. And the answer he gives is, because that's what love does. And that's really the answer here. Through, throughout his, his writings, Paul demonstrates that, that believers can practice their faith in a, in a multitude of ways but they can, they can never in the process, any, any way that we carry out our faith, any way that we live out our faith, we can never get very far away from the great commandment. So we, we know the great commission, right? Which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We know the great commission, but there's also the great commandment. And you can't fulfill the great commission without the great commandment. You know what the great commandment is, right? In Mark chapter 12, Jesus, Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's the great commandment. As we carry out the great commission, we have to do it in light of the great commandment. We carry out the commission to reach the world in a spirit of love. Because that's, that reflects him and who he is. So in this section, Paul teaches that, that love is, a, is a really a very urgent requirement for all believers. And, and, uh, and he, he really talks about, and we'll get into it a little bit here, about the fact that love uh, is not to be withheld for later. You, you know, have you ever heard the saying, somebody said we should give flowers before the funeral? Something like that. That's not the, I, I, there's another saying, I don't know what it is, but... But it's uh, basically the idea is that, is that, you know, the funeral comes and we give the flowers, we say all the nice things, and we need to do that, we need to do that now. Don't hold it for later. 
And, and, and that's a little bit of what he's talking about. But look at verse 8 of Romans 13. He said, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So I want to talk a little bit about that first phrase a little bit because I, I think that, that that verse and that phrase has been at times misused a little bit. And, uh, and I want to make sure we, we look at it, that we understand it, uh, because we, we need to ask ourselves, he, he says, owe no one anything. We need to understand, uh, I think we need to, to understand what is the biblical view of debt? What, what, is the, what does the Bible say about debt? It, it, as a Christian, is it wrong for me to have debt, to, 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 to owe money? Uh, because listen, for most of us, if it's, if it's sinful, for us to have debt or to owe money, then we're in a heap of trouble. And so uh, it, it says to owe no one anything. But as I said, this verse has, I've seen it misused and, and misunderstood and, and misapplied. Uh, and, and it may have been misused in your life. You may have heard it. I, I've heard people take this phrase, owe no one anything, and then say that a Christian should never, ever, ever have any kind of debt. And they say that should never, ever happen is in the life of a believer. Well, you know, if, if you really believe uh, what it, that interpretation of it, because it says, oh, no one, anything. It doesn't even just talk about money, does it? It's talking about anything. And so if you really believe that, that really changes your life, doesn't it? You, you go, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to have debt. So that means it changes how I purchase a car. It means that it changes how I get a home. For, and for most of us, if that's how we propose that we should live, it means that we're, we're never going to own a home because your money is going to be tied up in paying rent. And so you're never going to be able to save enough money to buy a home straight out. But, but getting a mortgage to buy a home would violate that principle of never, ever owing anyone anything. At, at, at that point, what happens is it's, it's no longer about wisdom. It's, it's not like, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea for, for, to stay away from debt or, or asking yourself, is it a good idea for me to even uh, to, to get into this debt? But now, if we apply it like that, it's a, it's a moral rule. And, and, and it just says you don't get into debt, period, moral rule. It's not, is this situation legitimate? Is this a wise decision? That's not even the question if, if we approach it like it's a, a rule, per, personally, if that's what God says, if that's really what the Bible says, I, I, that's what I want to know. What does the Bible say? Because if that's what God says, then I'm, I'm down with that. I, I want to do whatever he says in the word. You know, God, you control my wallet, as pathetic as that may be. Uh, you control it all. It's all under your control. And I'm down with doing whatever you say with my money and then trusting you to, to, to take care of all the results. So, so the real question for us tonight as we look at this for a few minutes is that, is, is that what this passage in Romans is saying? Is, is that really what it means? That's the question. And I, I don't believe that's what it's saying at all. I think the, uh, I don't know if you, that's the message of the passage. In fact, um, uh, if you do interpret it that way, then I think there are consequences if you look at it and say, this is a rule that says you should never have any kind of debt whatsoever. Because uh, if, you know, if it's a moral rule, it applies in little things as well as big things, right? Is, is, would you agree with that? If, if, if there's a moral law that God puts out in the Word, it's going to apply in small things as well as big things. Just, it's just, you know, if it's true, it's true. If it's a law, it's a law. 
So that means if, if, you, if that's what it's saying, then if you can never owe anyone anything, then say you forget your wallet at, at home and, and you're at work and it's lunchtime and you realize, oh man, I left my wallet at home. You can't say, hey man, can you get me, get me today? Then I'll, I'll get you tomorrow. I'll pay you back later. Wait a minute. Owe no man anything. You know, you, you can't do that. Or, or you're out of gas for your lawnmower. You run out in the middle of mowing the lawn and so you go to your neighbor's house and you knock on the door and you say, hey, can I, can I borrow some gas for my lawnmower so I can finish mowing my lawn? I'll fill up your gas can later when I'm done. No, no, if this is a moral rule, you can't do that. I mean, can, can you even borrow a pencil? Uh, if this is a straight, strict, unbreakable rule, can I even borrow a pencil from, from someone? So, so first of all, we have to ask the question, is it sinful to have debt? Is debt a sinful thing in a Christian's life? Well, first, when you, when you look at the Bible, we need to understand that God never expressly forbids borrowing, even in this Romans passage. We'll get into what, it talk, what it's talking about a little bit later. In fact, there's, this is the only uh, sentence in all of Scripture and all the verses that I could find that even you could even begin to interpret it that way. Uh, it, it, but, but when you look at what Scripture says throughout the Bible, in, in fact, Jesus actually commands us to be willing to lend. Uh, think of these words of Jesus. If borrowing is always a sin, then why did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 42, give to him who asks you and from him who would borrow from you, do not turn away. If it's, if it's always a sin to borrow and then I lend to a person that wants to borrow, if it's a sin, then am I not causing them to sin? Am I not helping them to walk in sin? But that's what Jesus said, so it wouldn't make any sense. While, while God, the truth is, he does not forbid borrowing, but he does, uh, on the other hand, he forbids the abuse of the borrower by the lender. He gives us rules for borrowing and lending. Turn to Leviticus, excuse me, Leviticus 25, what we're told about, uh, what, we're, what we're told about to, uh, is, let me try that again. What we're about to get into and what we're going to talk about, we're, we're going to go into the Old Testament law, uh, not to say that we're under the law, but to say that, that God taught us wonderful truths throughout the law and that there are principles that we draw from the law. That's how Paul uses the law very regularly as, as he's writing in the New Testament, treating the law as, as something that gives us principles. But Leviticus 25, verse, beginning in verse 35, it says this, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, then you shall support him as if he were a foreigner or a sojourner so that he may live with you. Now look at this verse. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God so that your brother may live with you. You shall not Lend him your money at interest, nor lend him your food for profit. So specifically, he's saying in ancient Israel under the Mosaic law, they were not allowed to charge interest to a fellow Israelite who was poor, who had fallen on hard times. So that was what they were saying. Listen, he, he's saying, listen, when, when, if you have, see somebody that's a fellow Israelite, that, that, uh, they, that they just... Things go bad for them. How many of you know sometimes things go bad in life, right? And, and sometimes you need help and sometimes you're the one who needs to give help. That's just the way life is. And basically he's saying, listen, when you see that 
and they need to borrow some money to get through, he says, you lend them that money, but because they're poor, don't take advantage of them in that moment. And he says, don't charge them any interest. That's what he specifically said. I think that's very interesting. Look at Exodus 22, 25. It says something really very similar. This, this is also uh, about the, uh, this is also from the Mosaic Law, speaking to us about this idea of debt and borrowing and lending. In, in fact, uh, you know, when you read in the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's assumed that borrowing and lending is going to be necessary in the lives of certain people. That's the assumption. When they're moving into the promised land, they were saying, listen, we know this is going to happen, but they're told not to do something. And, and here it is. Exodus twenty two twenty five. 25, if you lend money to any of my people who is poor among you, do not be a creditor to him and do not charge him interest. So borrowing and lending is not forbidden at all, but there are guidelines concerning how we are to treat those who borrow from us, especially if they're borrowing from us from a position of need. Loaning to the poor is, is kind of assumed in, in, in the Bible. The, the, but in that process, notice that the poor borrowers are never rebuked in those situations. The, the Bible never rebukes them and says, Oh, you should not borrow that, you, you horrible, rotten sinner. That's not what it says. However, the lender is cautioned to not abuse the borrower, borrower by taking advantage of this person who's in need, who's desperate. Now, there are other places where it talks to the borrower. There are warnings to the borrower. Look at Proverbs 22.7. We're, we're just going to look at, this is probably the last one, uh, but this, this is where the book of Proverbs gives a warning to the person who's about to borrow money because he, he, there, there's wisdom involved in that process of choosing the, to do this because sometimes... Especially, how many, you, you, I think you'll uh, uh, probably uh, understand this in, in our culture. Sometimes we want to borrow money so that we can buy stuff that we don't really need. <laughs> get, get, get an amen. You know what I'm talking about, right? And it's this pressure. Part of it is like, you know, you see a young couple and they get married and then they want everything that their parents had in their house without realizing it took their parents decades to get all of that stuff. And so they end up getting themselves in debt uh, to get stuff that they don't need, but it's just stuff that they want. Um, it it's really becomes more of trying to fulfill our wants and desires. But Proverbs 22, 7 says this. This is, this is the caution. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So, so here's the thing. What we have to know, borrowing is not free money. It's, it's not free money. Borrowing is getting money at a cost. That's what it is. That's how you're getting money. You're actually paying uh, for the money. And, and, you know, that's why when you look at a loan, you, you know, it's not just about how much of your monthly payment is going to be or whatever, but you look at it and you say, okay, by the time I pay all of this back, how much am I actually paying for this? And you'll, you realize that you're, you're actually paying for the right to get that money up front is, is what's happening. And so because of that, the rich rules over the poor. You're, you're spending your life, you're working, you're earning money for them to be able to pay them back. So, so don't kid yourselves. You, you become their servants. It's pretty serious stuff. 
Now, I want to say this. Sometimes you get into a situation where you have to take out a loan and maybe the interest rate is not what you'd like it to be because sometimes you have no choice. You're like, I, I had to take this uh, out this loan. It was the only option I had. And, you know, in that case, I, all I can say is my heart goes out to you. Uh, someone in that moment took advantage of your, of your hardship. So, but, but what I'm saying is, with, is this. When we talk about borrowing and lending, particularly on the borrowing side, it is not a sin issue, but it is a wisdom issue. It's not a sin issue, but it is a wisdom issue. And the Bible teaches, avoid debt wherever you can. If you can avoid it, avoid it. It doesn't mean that all debt is wrong and sinful. And I don't think that's what Proverbs is talking about there. I don't think it's a prohibition against borrowing. The book of Proverbs isn't like that. It's, the book of Proverbs is like, hey, keep this in mind. This is a general principle. This would be wise. But, but, but it, it, in context, Romans 13, 8 is, it, it, again, you take it in context. When you look at context, you look at the context in the verse, in the context in the chapter, in the context in the book. But then you also have to look at context in the entire Bible. So when you look at it in context uh, uh, of the Bible, then you begin to realize that it's not teaching against borrowing. And you look at the context more closely in Romans uh, 12 and 13, you begin to realize that, it's, again, it's not teaching against borrowing, except as it applies to borrowing things or money that you cannot hope to repay. Because Romans 13, 8 is not about never going into debt. What it's really about is it's about always paying your debt. He says, owe no man anything. See, what was, what was happening was, you know, there were people, there were Christians in their early church that they were, there were a couple of things that were taking place. One, they would be like, well, I got saved. I'm a new creation. I'm not the old man, so I don't owe that money. So I'm just not going to pay him back. And Paul's saying, no, no, don't, don't walk through life owing that, that person. Or some people would say, well, Jesus is coming back. Why should I worry about it? I don't have to worry about it when he comes. He's saying, no, listen. He said, uh, pay, pay your debt. If you owe somebody, take care of it. Don't, don't walk through life constantly. In fact, some translations will, if, when you read it, they translate it with that slant to help you understand, get that picture on there. But, but the, verse, the verse before it that we just talked about last week, it says to give what you owe to people. He says give taxes where, when taxes are due. When you owe taxes, pay your taxes, he said. Honor to whom honor is due, is due. If you, if, they, if you honor, you give them honor. If you respect to whom respect is due, if you owe respect, you, you give them respect. So the idea is, in context here, is that you already owe things to people. And this verse is about paying what you owe, whether that is honor, respect, or an, an actual monetary debt. If you have debt, keep up your payments. That's, that's how it applies to the, on the financial side of it. That's really the application. Just keep up your payments. Take care of, of the debts that you do have. Now, when we talk about this, we need to understand, or we were talking about earlier, the first part of, of not going into debt, that's not a moral requirement, but this, the idea of paying back your debt, is a moral requirement from the Old Testament as well. Uh, look at Psalm 37, verse 21. It says this, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous is gracious and gives. So as a Christian, 
I can, I can apply Romans 13, 8 to money, but it, apply, it applies to payments, not loans. But I need to make sure that I'm keeping up on my payments, that I'm actually paying my debt, that I'm not just blowing it off. Uh, because obviously, for one reason, uh, if I say that I'm a follower of Christ and then I say, well, I'm not going to pay you back. Guess what? That person is not going to be interested in my Christ. Because I just defrauded them. So uh, as a Christian, I need to understand that paying my debts, this is a moral principle, that I repay what I have borrowed. I pay what I owe. As a Christian, I have a moral mandate to pay back what I borrowed. And now listen, I understand there come times in life, things happen where you, 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 just, you just cannot pay it back. You know, and there are laws to deal with those kind of things. There, there are times happen. I know a family that Years ago, they had twin daughters, and they were, they were born uh, extremely prematurely and had heart, they had to do open-heart surgery in, on them. And I remember uh, him telling me that the surgeon told them that they, they were so tiny, these two little babies, that it was like operating on wet toilet tissue. Um, you know, and, and so obviously, guess what? Massive medical bills. And, and, and so, you know, there are ways to deal with that and they'll work with you. So, so I understand those kind of things happen and I'm not trying to heap guilt on anybody if you're in a position like that. But, uh, but, but I am saying you just do what you can do to deal with the debt. You, you deal with it honestly. You don't avoid it. You don't duck it. You do what you can do and deal with it. Talk with the people. So let me give you, and then we're going to move on from this to other, some other things, but there, let me give you three conclusions about debt that I see in the scripture. Number one, avoid debt where you can. That, that's, that's a wisdom issue based on Proverbs because the borrower is, borrower is servant to the lender. So avoid debt wherever you can. That, this, is, this is just a wisdom issue. It is wise not to go into debt if you can avoid it. Uh, and, and you know, listen, some people... They're very successful in this. They're very successful at avoiding debt completely. But if that's you, let me just caution you on this. If that's you, don't feel like that you're more righteous than other people who have debt. Just because you were able to, that's a blessing from God that you're able to do that. But that doesn't mean that somehow you can look down on people who do have debt in their life. Um, I mean, if that's true, if that's you, good for you. Great. I'm happy for you. That's wonderful. But you can't look down on others who aren't in the same position as you. You don't know what they've gone through. That's what I learned a long time ago. I cannot make uh, snap judgments on a lot of situations with a lot of people because I don't know what they've gone through. I don't know what they're dealing with. I'll give you a silly example. You know, um, uh, it's been uh, over the years, I've preached a lot of different sermons. And I always say this, I have seen a lot of people fall asleep in my sermons. <laughs> it happens. And, uh, but I remember, you know, I've seen people uh, that did it just like clockwork. You know, like, like it was sort of like I would judge when I needed to start ending the sermon by how far back their head was, was tilting, you know, because I thought I better end this or they're going to break their neck and die. And, but, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get upset. I don't judge people. I don't say, I can't believe why in the world? I mean, that's so rude, fall asleep in church. And the sermon, this is the word of God. I mean, worked hard on this. But you know what? That particular lady had a husband at home 
who was, had dementia, and, and, I mean, was, and he was in very bad shape, and she was often up late at night with him, didn't get the kind of rest she needed, and yet she was there. And so, you know, I could, I could get all upset and judge her for that, you know, falling asleep. But the truth is, she went to a lot of effort just to be there. And so, you know, that's, that's just a kind of a silly illustration to help us understand that sometimes, well, you know, you look at somebody, if you're out of debt, if you don't have any debt, you can't look down on somebody who does have debt because you don't know what they went through. Maybe they've gone through something that, that was devastating financially, and they're in the process of trying to work their way back out of that. You just don't know. You just don't know. So anyway, I got a little sidetracked there. Avoid debt when, when you can. Second conclusion, pay the debt you owe. Now, that's not just wisdom. That's a moral obligation. That's what the Bible says we should do. And then number three, help those in need without taking advantage of their lack. And again, that's a moral obligation. That is something the Bible tells us we need to do. If we see somebody in need and I'm able to help them, then the Bible says that I am to help that person in need and I'm not to use that moment in, that, in their life to get control of their life or to, or to charge them, you know, make them pay back some sort of high interest on that, but I'm just going to help them. And that's a moral thing. In fact, uh, that, uh, when it comes to lending, you know, uh, one rule of thumb would be uh, don't lend what you can't afford to lose. You know, if you lend money out, lend what you, what you can, what, if they don't pay you back, you know, <clears throat> don't lend more than, than would hurt you. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it right. It's trying to come out here. It's thinking one way here. It's coming out different up here. Um, but... Uh, you know, if, if I give you a certain amount of money and I loan that to you, do it with the expectation of saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I want them to pay me back. But you know what? If they don't, I'm going to be just fine. And, and, I, and if they don't pay me back, then that's just going to be a blessing to them. So, you know, just that's a one way to approach it. So anyway, money. Money, you know, that's an important thing the Bible talks about. But this passage, this money is not what this passage is primarily about. What he's actually doing, he's drawing a parallel and says to owe no one anything except to love. That's the main application. What's implied uh, is that paying my debt is, debts is a moral obligation. And so he says, you already know that's a moral obligation. So now he's trying to get across Listen, you not only have a moral obligation to pay back your financial debts, but you have a moral obligation to love the people around you. That's what you owe them. And, and that's what's implied in this whole idea. Whether the, whether the debt that I owe is honor, which, you know, I should honor the, 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 because of their position. Maybe, maybe I can honor because of the position, not because of their character. A lot of politicians that are probably in that category right there. Um, if it is debt, uh, if, excuse me, if the debt is respect, then I, then I owe that respect to them. If, if the debt is money, then I owe that money. But, but the real debt that I owe in the process of all these things that, I, that I'm obligated to give to them according to Scripture is that I actually owe people a debt of love, and that changes things for me. To understand 
that I owe this to them. I owe this to them, not they owe this to me. It's the opposite of the way our culture kind of approaches it. Our culture is like, well, you, you owe this to me. You should treat me this way. And, and, and that's, that's how we, we've got to change the way we see things, that I owe them a, a debt that, that I, can never, I can never repay. I like the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. It says, pay all your debts except the debt of love for others. You can never finish paying that. I owe people love, and, and our debt of love can never be paid in full. I can never get to the point where I say, I've loved you enough. I'm done. Love is an obligation for us as Christians that is as real as taxation. It is as real as, as personal debt repayment. It is absolutely just as real as those things that I owe you love. I owe love to you. And Paul, Paul teaches that the, the, this, the reason for this love, this love is, is really the basis of the law. And Jesus, Jesus taught the same, same type of thing. That's, we read it earlier. We're going to read a, another passage from Matthew in a moment. Uh, quoting the very similar, the very same story, but uh, but but Paul he says in verse eight he said, "For he who loves another has fulfilled the law." Now that sounds a little strange to us, but you got to understand what what he does. He quotes several laws to show how that that these are kept if a person simply acts in love. Look look at verse nine. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandments are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, the commandments, all these that he listed, these commandments that are against adultery and murder and stealing and coveting, uh, all these things that Paul quotes are, are directly from the Ten Commandments and they apply to our relationships with others. In fact, you look at the Ten Commandments, the first part of the Ten Commandments all apply to our relationship with God, and the last part of the Ten Commandments all apply to our relationships with each other. And that's why when Jesus quoted, and we're going to say, read it again in a moment, when he quoted the two greatest commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with everything in you and love, the, love your neighbor as you love, the way you love yourself. Because if you love God right, then you're going to be taking care of all those first commandments. If you love your neighbor right, you're going to be taking care of all the rest of the Ten, the ten Commandments. So he lists them all and, and he and real, helps us to realize that, uh, that, um, that if we love, then we're, we're going to be carrying out these commandments properly, just in a natural sense. That's what's going to happen. Um, think of it like this. If I love you, I don't steal from you. Right? So then I'm carrying out the commandment, thou shalt not steal. If I love you, then I don't become envious of, of, the, of the good things that you have and the good things that happen in your life. Instead, because I love you, I rejoice with you. So that takes care of covetousness. I, I don't, you know, if I love you, this one should be really obvious. If I love you, I don't murder you, right? <laughs> right? Or let me, let me just, let me just, some of you are like, oh man. No, no, I'm sorry, you can't murder anybody, but, but let me just say this, that also would include murdering, uh, I, if I love you, I don't murder your reputation through uh, uh, idle, malicious gossip either. Um, if I love you, I don't 
try to steal your spouse's affection. See, so love leads us to the place where we fulfill the commands. Love fulfills the law because when we act in love, we don't do the things that the law forbids. All the laws are about interpersonal relationships, interpersonal relationships can be summed up by the, this one law quoted by Paul from Leviticus 19.8, love your neighbor as yourself. And when asked about the most important commandment, we read it from Mark, but I'm going to read it from Matthew this time. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, you know, he said in both places, he went on and he said, he said, uh, in, in these, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled. That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you love God right and you love people right, it's going to take care of all of the laws. That's, that's his point there. And, of course, it talks about you love your neighbor as yourself. And then some people, like the Pharisee talking to Jesus, they might ask, well, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus, Jesus illustrated his meaning with the parable of the Good Samaritan. We all know the story. There is, uh, but we, we got to understand, as we, when we talk about the story, we need to understand the setting, that there was, there was deep hatred absolute deep hatred between Jews and Samaritans. They hated one another. The Jews particularly really looked down on the Samaritans, very prejudicial, very uh, racist mentality. Uh, but, but they saw themselves as pure descendants of Abraham, while the Samaritans, they were a mixed race because the Samaritans, if you don't know their background, they were, they were produced uh, uh, when, when, uh, when the Jews from the northern kingdom uh, when they were taken into captivity, there were many Jews that were left and they were and other Jews were taken into captivity. But what the what they did when they when they uh, uh, conquered these kingdoms is they would take people from different lands and transplant them into the places that had been conquered elsewhere. So now you have these foreigners that are transplanted into the northern kingdom of Israel and you have the Jews that are there and they intermarried and started having children so they're mixed race they're not full-blooded Jews and and that was how the Samaritans came into be and so the Jews looked down on them and said oh, you know the they, and they were real you know very self-righteous about it because the the Old Testament said you shall not intermarry oh you people you blew it all of you are the spawn of evil you know that's in fact I mean they 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 used that as a slur when, when they were talking about Jesus. And they said, we know now that you're, not, you're, you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan. It was, it was just a horrible situation. So in the parable that Jesus told, you remember, a, a Jewish man was beaten and robbed as he traveled down the road. And there were two Jews who passed by, a priest and a Levite. So they were not only Jewish men, but they were religious Jewish men. They were looked up uh, uh, to and said, man, these people have really got it going together. And they walked by. Not only did they pass him by, but the Bible says they crossed to the other side of the road, make sure they got as far away from him as possible. Because if, what if he's dead? If I touch him, then I'm going to be disqualified from carrying out my duties in the temple. And, and I got my religious stuff I got to do, so I can't take care of this guy. And the Jews walked on by. But a Samaritan who happened along, the person 
who was least likely to help was the one who stopped and cared for this unfortunate Jew in the story. And, 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 his, and Jesus chose the character of a Samaritan on purpose because he was trying to explain to them that your neighbor is not just the person who is like you. Your neighbor is not just the person who believes what you believe because the Samaritans believe differently than the Jews did uh, about a lot of different things. He said your, your neighbor is, is, is not just the people you're friendly with, but your neighbor is anybody that's in need that you see, even if they're your enemy. Because they were enemies, Samaritans and Jews. A neighbor can be of any race, creed, or social background. A neighbor is anyone we come across who is in need. We, we're the call, we are called to love our neighbor by doing whatever we can to meet their needs in, our, in their lives, even if that neighbor happens to be somebody who proclaims themselves to be my enemy. That is hard to do. That does not come naturally to us, does it? And we meet that need, whether that need is financial, emotional, spiritual, or mental. And we're called, he said, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, somehow, over the years, some of us have gotten this idea that self-love is wrong. You know, now, if you love yourself too much, then you got pride issues. But if that were the case, you know, if it was wrong to love ourselves then it would be pointless to be told to love our neighbors as ourselves. Like, right? I mean, if the Bible's, if the Bible's stance was you should not love yourself, and then he says love your neighbor as yourself, well, that means I don't have to love you because I'm not supposed to love myself. But, but what we need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about, about the self-love and what, what he's talking about, the Bible uses, what it really talks about is is that e even if you suffer from what we in our culture call low self-esteem, you, you probably don't willingly let yourself go hungry. Right? Like, I just don't feel good about myself, so I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to eat today. No, no, you don't. Do you clothe yourself reasonably well as well as you can. You make sure as much as you can, you make sure there's a roof over your head. You, you try to protect yourself from injury. You, you try to prevent yourself from being cheated by other people. And, and, and this, that is self-love. You're taking care of your own needs. You're taking care of yourself. And so when he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, this is exactly why it fits in perfectly with the story of the Good Samaritan because, because he's saying, listen, you see somebody that's in need you would do whatever you would do for yourself to help them in their position of need. So if, if, you, would, if you would go out and, and buy yourself a meal when you were hungry and you see that they're hungry, he says what you, to, the way you love them the way, uh, as yourself is that you go get a meal and give them something to eat. That's love. See, we, love in the Bible is eminently practical. You know, in our culture, love is very impractical. In our culture, love is about, you know, butterflies in your stomach and, you know, infatuation and all these things. But biblical love, the, the, what it talks about there is, is, is very, very practical because it's really about meeting your needs, even at the expense of my own needs. 
So that when we talk about loving ourselves and loving uh, others the way that we love ourselves, that's what it really is talking about. We're to be concerned about loving others. We're to be actively working to see that their needs are met even if there's somebody who proclaims themselves to be our enemy. The focus here, and this is I mentioned earlier, we are to be concerned about loving others not about being loved by others. Now, everybody wants to be loved. I understand that. I'm not saying that you should say, well, I'm just not going to want to be loved anymore. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that our stance, the way we approach life, the way we approach relationships as a follower of Jesus, Jesus should be that I'm more concerned about loving you than having and meeting your needs than you meeting my needs. But also, you know, you talk about low self-esteem. Also, you know, I've learned a long time ago, people who focus on others rather than themselves rarely suffer from low self-esteem because their focus is not on themselves. See, a person with low self-esteem, what are they thinking about all the time? Themselves. You know? If they're, if they're paranoid, you know, they walk into a room and they see a couple of people whispering in the corner. That person's the one that's like, they're talking about me when there's no evidence to that. So focusing on others rather than your, yourself really helps you deal with those things. Verse 10, love works no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When, when we love others, we, we, will, we will not purposefully harm them or do evil to them. We already kind of talked about uh, that uh, and that concept already, but uh, we, we have to obey the law of love, which, by the way, supersedes religious and civil laws. It's, excuse me, it's easy to, to excuse our indifference to others merely because we have no legal obligation to help them. Uh, or sometimes we can even justify harming them if our act actions are technically legal. But Jesus doesn't leave any loopholes in the law of love. Whenever love demands it, we are to go beyond human legal requirements, and we are to imitate the, the God of love. All right, let's be, pick it up in verse 11. Let's read 11 through 14, and we'll look at those. Furthermore, knowing the time now, uh, knowing the time, now is the moment to awake from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us take off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in immorality and wickedness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its, loss, its lust. Now, Paul wants believers to realize uh, their, their constant need to show love, but he says this is especially true considering the times in which we live that Christ's return is near. The imminent return of Christ it becomes the motivation for our love. New Testament passages on the return of Christ uh, tend to center on, on our responsibility in light of the fact that he's returning to be, for example, to be morally prepared, to be holy. Uh, he talks about that in different places. Because he's returning, we should be holy. We, we, we should be spiritually alert. He even talks about some of that here. We should be diligently serving Believers must be vigilant and alert and, and not caught unaware. The idea here, 
Because, you know, he even refers to an armor of light here. The idea here is not so much about putting an armor on to prepare for battle in this, in this passage. He talks about that more in Ephesians. But here, it's really more about standing guard. A soldier who's standing guard. Be alert. Stay awake. Because in the ancient world, just as, as it is in today's world, guards that fell asleep or guards that got drunk on duty were condemned. Verse 11 said, now is the moment to awake from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. He says, wake up, be sober, be vigilant, be aware of the time in which you live. Don't allow yourself to, to begin to slumber on, and be on guard. Re remaining too long in a state of spiritual lethargy, where, where, where sin is tolerated, where good works are not pursued, you know what that does? That leads us into sort of a spiritual coma. Uh, where, where, and the thing about uh, someone in a coma, the, the thing about a coma is that person is completely unresponsive. Right? And when we fall into a spiritual coma, we may be alive spiritually, but we're on spiritual life support and we are unresponsive to God and unresponsive to the voice of the Spirit. He says, listen, if that's where you find yourself, if you're beginning to slumber, if you're beginning to slide that direction, he says, wake up, wake up. The time is, is, is near, the night is ending and the day is coming. And, and he, he talking about the, the night is the time of evil and the day is the return of Christ. And you know, the interesting thing is, uh, when people wake up in the morning, what do they do? They get dressed. And he says, it's time to wake up and it's time to clothe yourselves with Jesus. Put on Christ. It's time to get up. It's time to put on your armor and get ready for the day that's, that's ahead of us. The, 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 our, our ultimate and final salvation, the return of Christ is nearer now than, than when we first believed. Each day that passes brings us closer to the time of Christ's return where we're going to be taken into heaven and we'll be with him forever. And, and there's a lot more that will happen down the road, but this is not a prophecy class tonight. But when, uh, you know, the, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Uh, I want to read verses 12 and 14 again. He said, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us take off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in immorality and wickedness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The, the night, as I said, refers to the present evil time. The day refers to the time of Christ's return. In fact, in Scripture, often it's referred to as the day of the Lord. And, and, and believers in Paul's day, as well as believers today, are living in the night. We're living in the light, but we're living in a culture that's in the night. Does that make sense? In a time of darkness characterized by, by Satan's evil work, and believers are called to put aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. And, and, and with great determination, we're, we're to throw off those things in our lives that, that will have no place in eternity. And we do that with the same distaste that we would throw off, that we would throw off filthy garments when we're getting ready for some formal occasion. The deeds of darkness that, that are done in, the, in, in night. And, and the, it gets that, that idea of the deeds of darkness. It's, it comes from the illusion that they can't be seen. That's why people do things at night. You know, They break into cars at night because they don't want to be seen. 
They, they do things, that, and, and that's the whole idea behind it, but, but we forget God sees in the night. And we've got to remember this. And Paul gives some examples of what does not please God. He, he gives examples of actions, activities, and attitudes that belong to the darkness. He said, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunk, drunkenness, not in immorality and wickedness, not in strife and envy. And, you know, and some people read that and they're a little surprised that Paul lists dissension and jealousy, uh, you know, uh, along with the gross, obvious sins of, uh, as some translations put it, orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality. But, but here's the thing, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, just like Paul here, considers attitudes to be as important as, as, as actions. In fact, you know, in, under grace, uh, under the law, as long as you didn't do the act, you were okay. But under grace, under the New Testament, Jesus made it clear to help us to begin to see God's not just all about, all about your actions. He wants your heart that leads to the actions. And when Christ returns, he wants to find his people who are, who are clean on the inside as well as on the outside. Verse 14, he said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And uh, we, we already kind of talked about that a little bit, but let, let me just add something to that. We, we put on Christ. What that means is this is a deliberate, conscious acceptance of the Lordship of Christ so that all of our desires and actions are under His control. We live in conformity to His mind and to His will. We should live as Christ would live. You remember those, uh, that fad that was going around a long time ago, they had the bracelets, WWJD? It's, it's, it's a, it's a the, the, of course, you know, that came from a specific book in His Steps. Uh, was the name of the book. If you never read it, it's a great book. You should read that. But, um, but, the, but the principle is from right here. It's the same idea that, that we should live as Christ would live. If he were living today, how would he live? Would he do the things that I do? Would he watch the things on TV that I watch? Would he, would he act the way that I act? Would he say the things that I say? That's the idea, to put Christ on and, and live as though Christ lived in us, which, by the way, he does. Paul, Paul's admonition here, you know, it really is, it's to be what we already are in Christ. He's saying, you know, you, you're already in Christ, so now live like it. That's his point. And he says to make no provision for the flesh. You know, I think that's a very, some practical way to look at this is that I know that some people make things much harder for themselves by failing to take steps to avoid situations and avoid temptation. Uh, for instance, you know, a believer who, who knows that in the past he has struggled with drunkenness, then he's not helping himself if he continues to stock, stock up on alcohol and invite his friends over for parties, he's not helping himself if he hangs out at the bar with his old friends. Uh, living in the light means thinking about how to avoid gratifying sinful desires. So if I know I'm weak in an area, if I've struggled in an area, then one of the things I do that as I'm growing in the Lord, I want to try to stay away from that. You know, instead of trying to, you know, some, what we do, we want to see how close we can get without actually doing it. Reminds me of an old story about a man, a wealthy man who was looking for a chauffeur to drive him around in his car. 
And he took him up. Uh, the, he had three guys that were up for the job. And he, they t- took him up on, on, a, on a mountain road. And it was a sharp curve. And the edge of the road was a steep fall off. No, almost no shoulder at all, no guardrail. And he said, all right, I'm going to test your driving skills here. And, and he said, I want, you to, I want you to go around this curve and we're going to see who gets the closest to the, to the edge. And the first guy gets in the, show, in the limousine and he pulls up there. I mean, the, the, the tires are right on the line. He's just close as he could be to the edge of the road. And he comes, uh, goes around the corner. He's like, well, that was pretty impressive. And then the, then the next guy, he comes up and had tires hanging halfway off the road. And I mean, he had to gun it just to get around the, the curve to keep from going down into the ravine. Then the third guy, he gets in the limo and he gets all the way over inside as far away from the cliff as possible and goes around and the, and the wealthy man said, you're hired. Because he wanted somebody who was going to keep him as far away from danger as he could be. That's how we got to approach our lives. If we know we struggle in an area, stay away from it. Don't put yourself in that position. Don't, in other words, as he says there, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You know, and whatever it is. Now listen, and there, there, there are as many areas that we are susceptible to as there are people. You know, so what I struggle with is not going to be the same as what you struggle with. So therefore, and, and he's going to get into this a little bit more in chapter 14 with personal convictions. There are going to be areas that I need to avoid that maybe you don't need to avoid. Does that make sense? You know, if you struggle with gossip. Maybe you shouldn't spend as much time on the phone. <laughs> now we're getting down to real life, aren't we? You know, it's easy for us to talk about the, the, the drunkard, you know, staying away from the bar. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's wisdom. That's good, Pastor Dave. You should do that. But then when you start talking about gossip, it's like, wait a minute. Now you're, you've gone from preaching to meddling. So, so make no provision. Make no provision. Make no provision at all. But how do we prevent gratifying our desires? You know, I think it really comes down to what he said at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12. I believe the real key in all of this is the renewing of your mind. I believe that's the key in dealing with these things. It's the key in, in overcoming the, the desires of the flesh. It's the key to walking in love. It's the, all the key to all of these things. Because uh, we renew our mind. Because how, he said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are we transformed? We're transformed by changing our minds. Changing the way we think. Changing the way we see the world. Changing, this is where the battle is. This is where the battle is. And so, at renewing of the mind. We got to understand this. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, you know, we use the illustration about G-I-G-O, which is, you know, a computer term. Garbage in, garbage out. But, but it's the same principle here, but I want to say it in a little different way. The things you dwell on in your mind are the things that will begin to control your life. If you dwell on your worries, your worries will consume you. If you dwell on your fears, your fears will consume you. 
that's bad. But listen, there's a good side of it. If I dwell on His Word, His Word will transform me. So what Paul was talking about in Philippians 4, 8. So finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is any praise, think on these things. He says, pay attention to what's going on in your mind. Take control of it and begin to think on those things. And as we do that, we begin to see Christ more clearly than ever before. And as we grow in, in our walk with Him, as we put on Christ, our objective is to see Christ so clearly that all of those other sinful desires begin to fade from view because we see Him and we say, that's what I want. That's what I want. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I thank You for... Uh, that the fact, I thank you, Lord, for the fact that your word is so practical that it's not just some, uh, you know, high-minded teaching that, that makes us think about things that are ethereal, but Lord God, that it's, it is powerful and it is high, but it's also very real and practical and down to earth and, and about the way, it's about the way we live our lives. And so, God, I just pray you'd help us to be able to put your word into action that we would become people of love, that we would be people who put on Christ, that we would live our lives the way that Christ would live today. And that as we do, Lord God, as we walk through this world of darkness, that we would put on this armor of light and as, as a result would be a light, we would be a light shining in the dark world around us and that, that it would draw other people to Jesus. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to live our lives in such a way that we would give glory and honor to you and not to ourselves. And we thank you for all that you're doing, all you're going to do. We offer ourselves to you, Lord. We surrender willingly and, uh, and, uh, and, and purposefully to your lordship tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.